Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in Hebrews today, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Fear of Death. There's a passage later on in Hebrews, it's found in chapter 11, verse 35 and on, and there it speaks about some godly women who were tortured and who refused to compromise their faith in order to be released so that they might rise again to a better life. Then it speaks of others who suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. Some were stoned, some were sawn in two, some were killed with the sword, and some, because of the economic price to pay for following Jesus, went about destitute, dressed in skins of sheep and goats. It's all they had for clothing. Given that the book of Hebrews is written primarily to Jewish Christians who were tempted to abandon Jesus because of the looming possibility of a great persecution against Christians from Rome, well, one has to wonder how that kind of a description of the faithful people of God would have been an encouragement to anyone. Indeed, as we've been making our way through the beginnings of the book of Hebrews, we have in verse 13 of chapter 1 read that the Father has told the Son to sit at his right hand, seat of power and of ultimate authority, and to remain seated until all of his enemies are placed under his feet. But at least from the perspective of the Hebrew Christians, it must not have felt that way. It felt the opposite. And that's the struggle for a great many of us today. George Guthrie wrote the following lines. He said, the answer to our dilemma lies in our perception of reality and specifically the nature of the Christian faith. In Western Christianity especially, we've become committed to relieving the pain behind our problems rather than using our pain to wrestle more passionately with the character and purposes of God. Feeling better has become more important than finding God. And worse, we assume that people who do find God always feel better. Yeah, that's true enough, but but no one longs to suffer. And it's not just a Western problem. You know, the psalmist cries out, how long, O Lord? And even the great apostle Paul once testified that his struggle had become so great that he despaired of life itself. And so what does the writer of Hebrews say to encourage believers who appear to be facing potential suffering and perhaps even death? What can he say to encourage them not to be intimidated, not to give in to their worst fears? So let's read our text for today. It's Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There's a great deal in that passage, and we're going to have to go through it slowly, and we're going to notice that at the center of this passage is a lengthy quote. It comes to us from Psalm 8. It's a psalm of David in which he reflects on the grandeur of creation and man's place in it. But the way in which Hebrews treats this psalm has a great deal to do with Jesus and also a great deal to do with how we see his activity in this present hour. So where do we begin? 
I'm going to divide our passage in Hebrews into three sections. In the first section, we're going to notice the role of angels, both in the present world and in the world to come. That's found in verse 5. In the second section, we're going to examine the unique place of Jesus in the created order. That's in verses 6 to 8a. And then in the last section, in verses 8b to 9, we'll examine the reasons why in the hour of uncertainty, suffering, and death, Jesus is the only place for genuine hope. Well, good. Let's start with the first section, the place of angels. Remember verse 5, it said, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So let's start there. The passage says that the world to come, that is, the world when evil is destroyed with unquenchable fire, when suffering and death are no more, that world, the one that all believers eagerly await, that world is not subject to angels. So let's understand the context. The ancient Jewish rabbis believed that that God placed angels in charge over the various nations, and they got that idea from a number of Bible texts, and one was Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. It says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, the sons of God are the angels. God divides the nations according to the number of the angels. That doesn't mean that there are only as many angels as there are nations, but it does mean that he arranges the division of the nations to coincide with how he's arranged the division of the angels. The rabbis also got that idea from texts like in Daniel chapters 10 and 12, where one angel is called the Prince of Persia, another angel is called the Prince of Greece, and Michael, who's called the Great Prince, watches over the nation of Israel. And so it seems clear to me that both God's angels and the demonic realm are involved in the government of this present age. Whenever people tell me how evil the world is, I often think of how evil the world would be if God were not holding greater evil back through his angels. Indeed, the Greek word for subjected, the word that we find in Hebrews 2 verse 5, that God has not subjected the world to come to angels, subjected. Well, that means to submit to someone's arrangement. can be a military term. Troops are arranged and organized for battle under the leadership of their commanders. And it may be that the present world is arranged under the order of the angels and that there is, you know, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, there's a great warfare in the heavenlies. Satan, no doubt, spends his time with world leaders. He wants to bring about conditions that would be in opposition to God. But angels prevent even greater evils. So this present world sees that kind of an arrangement in spiritual warfare, and it results in the suffering of people. And that's not the arrangement in the world to come. There's a world coming in which the present warfare will be no more. And the angels God uses to fight his battles in the present hour will no longer be used in that way in the future. You see, the world to come is not subjected to angels, but he subjects the world to come. Now, wait for it. He subjects the new coming world to human beings. You remember what Jesus said? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Yeah, the world to come will be governed not by angels, but by human beings. And that's the first point. Understand the difference between the present world and the one to come. Angels will be supplanted by humans in governance. Now comes the second point, and that one makes use of Psalm 8. So let's read it again. It's in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 to 8a. It has been testified somewhere 
What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. So this psalm begins by David reflecting on the majesty of the created order, both here on earth and as he observes the magnificence of the heavens. See, I don't know about you, but I find that looking into the heavens fills me with a sense of both grandeur, but also a sense of humility. So listen to what David says in Psalm 8, 3 to 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, if we were to read that passage by itself, well, we might come to the conclusion that man, that is human beings, well, we're nothing. We exist on one planet in a cosmos of planets, and our sun is but a medium-sized star in a cosmos in which suns are so large, ours hardly seems to matter. And if we're on this small planet in, in a universe of untold galaxies, our place seems so insignificant, but that's not, not what David is expressing. Rather than thinking, you know, man is nothing, he says, no, no, human beings are the crown of God's creation. When he says, what is man, he's saying it with a sense of wonder. How is it, he says, that you, O God, in your eternal plans should take human beings and you should make them a little lower than the angels, lower in the sense that in this present hour they have less power than the angels, but you've crowned this man with glory and honor, and it's your eternal purpose to put everything under the feet of redeemed humanity. That vision is the vision of the place of man. Humankind is given authority over the earth. Adam and Eve, when they were created, were the kings and queens, lords of the earth, created to rule. Theirs was not an inferior role. God was the ultimate ruler, but he had entrusted the administration of his rule to his image bearers, man as male and female, lords of creation. What a thought. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to cover Canada with the gospel and share God's message across all demographic groups. But fulfilling the mandate of this Bible teaching ministry requires a team effort. The ministry fiscal year end is upon us and will conclude on June 30th. This year we have a faith goal to raise $325,000 by month's end to bring the ministry budget year to a successful close. We're praying for our listeners and partners across the country to join us in reaching this goal. So consider joining us this month. Your gift means so much as we strive together to continue to present God's word in truth to the world. To send a gift, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And one last note, thank you in advance for your gracious partnership. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that the world that is to come, the world when evil is defeated, will not be subjected to angels. It will be subjected to man. Indeed, the world that once existed, the world before a human rebellion against the Creator came into being, 
That was a world where Adam and Eve were to gradually bring the entire created order under their subjection, under their feet. The administration of God's rule was under their direction. But in quoting Psalm 8, if you read it carefully here in Hebrews, you're going to see that the writer of Hebrews applies Psalm 8 not to man, but to Jesus. Indeed, you can read Psalm 8 and see that where human beings failed, Jesus has succeeded. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels in that when when he became man, he assumed the place of humility. He humbled himself to become a man. He who was always fully God was found in human form, fully human. And furthermore, as Paul writes, Jesus is the ideal man. He says so in Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and why that text reminds us that our first human father led the entire human race into sin and thus led the entire human race to fall from grace, from lordship over nature, to ruin and suffering and disgrace. Now go forward to Romans 5, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life to all men. That is, you know, Adam's sin led to ruin, but Christ's righteousness led to the restoration of everything that was lost. So look again and go back to Hebrews 2. It's a quotation of Psalm 8. Apply it to Jesus. For a time in the incarnation, Jesus, the Son, was made a little lower than the angels, and because of his righteous life and obedient death, Jesus, the perfect and ideal man, was crowned with glory and honor, and everything is subjected under his feet. That is, Adam gave up his lordship of the earth. Jesus claimed his lordship of the earth. Everything is placed under his feet. Disease, death, nature, even his enemies. I mean, read through the gospel accounts of Jesus, and you're going to find very clear evidence of just that. He healed, he commanded nature, so forth. But what about the cross? Well, listen to Jesus' own words in John 10, 17 to 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Listen now. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Again, read through the accounts of the Bible. We're going to see that Jesus pushed his enemies into such a corner that they felt they had no alternative but to conspire with the Romans to nail him to a cross. That was Jesus' design. And I mentioned that so that we might see the cross as a part of Jesus' authority over his enemies. He had come to die and to die at the hands of wicked men so that he might become the source of salvation to everyone who believed. This was Jesus ruling, putting his enemies under his feet. That's not the story of defeat. It's the story of victory, of total domination. So notice what Hebrews 2.8 says. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Nothing. That means that Pontius Pilate, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they were in subjection to Jesus. He was not in subjection to them. And that's quite an insight. Now, that's not a minor point. All things are in subjection to Christ. Indeed, the early church understood that principle very well. Peter and John had just been imprisoned. Now they were released. In those early days, the pressure was ratcheting up against the church. So what would happen next? And so the church meets to pray, and here's what they prayed. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, that's it. Christ was ordering all things, including his crucifixion. And that must mean he was also ordering the present hour of suffering the early Christians were experiencing. But the writer of Hebrews is not done. If Christ were ordering all things, I mean, what do we make of the present hour? Now, if I am right in dating the book of Hebrews to the time of Nero, the emperor of Rome, uh, this was a homicidal man. His attitude toward the new Christian religion was that of burning Christians at the stake in Rome, and sometimes he used their fires to light his evening activities. This man was so demonic, so consumed with ego and wickedness, it's hard to imagine how Jesus had his feet on Nero's neck. It looked like Nero had his feet on Jesus' neck. And that's why the book of Hebrews portrayed Jesus as the ideal man, the man who rules all things. But halfway through verse 8, it says, At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Indeed, it is the case. While it's true that we delight in every man, woman, boy, girl, who bends the knee and confesses their sins, calls Jesus their Lord and their God, while we delight that God has demonstrated his lordship in their conversion, Look, it's also true that the vast majority of the human race have not done so. And it's also true that certain world leaders, rulers, are unspeakably evil. They prevent the advancement of the gospel. They pass laws to bring misery on untold followers. You know, furthermore, if we simply go from the macro to the micro, it's amazing how much evil exists in the world. I mean, everyone from the abused woman to the person who's unjustly fired to the person who's excluded and slandered, People suffer under the dominion of evil men and women. You know, and we wait as the woman in the parable who kept on crying out to the judge for justice. You know, the cries from the earth arise pleading with God for justice. See, at present, we do not see everything subjected to him. How then shall we find hope? So let's read how. Hebrews 2, 8b-9. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, at present, we do not see everything subjected to him. You know, him can refer to both Jesus, but it can also refer to man as human beings. We've lost our authority over the earth. We've ceded it in our rebellion to Satan and his host of evildoers. But, says Hebrews, we do see Jesus. And I want us to stop here and take that in. See, one of the great difficulties that some of us have is that we would say, I do see my trials. I do see evil. I do see evildoers. I see workers of iniquity. I even see the great unseen realm of the demonic that seeks chaos and destruction of all that is good. I see that. But if we are to understand the eternal perspective, we would see things differently. Do you remember how confused the legion of demons were at their encounter with Jesus? You remember what they said? They said, have you come to torment us before our time? See, they knew this wasn't the end of the present age of wickedness, and yet here before them stood the Son of God. So they asked, what in the world is going on? They didn't understand, but they did see Jesus standing before them, driving them out of that region and consigning them to a herd of unclean pigs. No, this was not the end of wickedness yet, but in this wicked and sinful and fallen age, we do see Jesus. We see him, says Hebrews, humble, 
born of a virgin, born in humility, yet proclaimed by angels, visited by magi, found as a babe in the arms of an old priest named Simeon, who when he saw the child said, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. We've also seen him on the day he rode into Jerusalem as the Galilean shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet for a time, he is lower than the angels in his incarnation. But, and get this, and this is breathtaking, but even in this lowly estate, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that's Jesus in his lowly and humble estate, fully obeyed his Father all the way to the cross, and consequently, he defeated death, and he was given a name which is above every name. And this has come with a result that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That is, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he tasted death on behalf of his people. Hence, the sting of death is taken away. We're going to read more about that later in this chapter, but, but that's the key to everything. Jesus has defeated death, and so Christians no longer fear the ultimate the evil one can do to them. In Jesus, death and sin have been defeated. Estranged from God, we do see death at work in us. Rebellion, evil, tragedies, persecution, menacing events, all these things threaten us because death lurks behind all of them. But says the writer of Hebrews, to all who have faith, we see Jesus who died for us, who tasted death for us, so that the fear of death and the curse that comes because of death would be taken from us. Paul would eventually say, where, O death, is your victory, where, O death, is your sting. If we see Jesus, the hope that he offers in this world can't be taken from us. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, how does our relationship with Jesus make a difference when we're suffering? Yeah, I I think um, it's important to say that Jesus has not promised that he will take suffering away from us but he will provide a way through it. Uh, We also remember that when we do suffer, that we have a savior who suffered uh, as a human, even as we suffer. And he is one that will provide us with all the strength that's required. And furthermore, there are spiritual lessons to be learned in the midst of suffering. God would not allow suffering into our lives unless he knew for certain that there were some things that we couldn't learn any other way. So those are some of the ways. Thanks again, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada exists to bring you into a transformative relationship with Jesus. And we're so encouraged to hear just how this is happening for those who listen to Dr. John's daily Bible teaching program. Kaylee recently shared, I am thankful for the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ written in God's holy word, taught by Dr. John Newfeld. The word is clearly taught and my walk with the Lord is deepened in him as I listen. If like Kaylee, you've been impacted by this ministry or, or someone you know has been impacted by it, We'd love to hear from you. 
Remember to touch base with us at 1-800-663-2425 or for more information about Back to the Bible Canada, go to backtothebible.ca.